This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Wolverine the Long Night. Marvel is unveiling their first scripted podcast ever, and it's available exclusively on Stitcher Premium. In Wolverine the Long Night, you'll be immersed in a murder investigation that explores a string of mysterious deaths in Burns, Alaska. The series stars Richard Armitage as Wolverine. You might know him as Thorn Oakenshield from the Hobbit trilogy, plus a special appearance from comedian and podcast host Chris Gethard. To listen now, go to wolverinepodcast.com, again, wolverinepodcast.com, and use the code MARVEL for a free month of Stitcher Premium. Again, wolverinepodcast.com, code MARVEL for a free month of Stitcher Premium. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. 500 years ago, St. Ignatius of Loyola, a soldier turned religious convert, created the Society of Jesus. My guest today argues that many of the principles Ignatius used to guide the Jesuit order are just as applicable to living a flourishing life today. His name is Father James Martin. He became the Jesuit priest after his stint in corporate America, and he's the author of the book, The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything. Today, Father Martin and I discuss why the insights of Ignatian spirituality have proven useful to people from various faiths or lack of it and backgrounds, and what these insights can teach us citizens of modernity. We discuss why you should pay more attention to your desires, the benefits of living simply, and how to free yourself from what Ignatius called disordered attachments. We also explore how not to be disappointed with your friends, how to improve those relationships, and how to think the best of others and ourselves. While Father Martin's advice is obviously given in the context of Christian faith, he's a Catholic priest after all, non-believers will also find plenty of insights in this show. After it's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash Jesuit. Father Martin joins me now via clearcast.io. Reverend James Martin, welcome to the show. My pleasure. So you wrote a book, The Jesuit's Guide to Almost Everything. And what you look at is you, you it's sort of a layman's explanation of the Jesuit order and their philosophy and their founder, Ignatius, how do you say his name? Ignatius. Ignatius. All right, Ignatius. So in St. Ignatius has a really interesting story. Tell us about him and how he started the Jesuit order. Sure. Well, uh, he was born in 1491 in the Basque country of Spain, and he started out as a, a page to a knight and then became a soldier. It was kind of vain. He describes himself in his own autobiography as vain. He was very concerned with his hair, by the way. He kept talking about that. And he is injured in a battle in 1521 in Pamplona, and that sort of prompts him to reconsider his life. He ends up recuperating and reading books about Jesus and about the saints, and he starts to have these experiences in prayer, which make him realize that the sort of former way of life that he was leading, trying to impress people and kind of doing great deeds, was not as satisfying as trying to live a holy life. And that leads him to, uh, through a number of twists and turns, found what's called the Society of Jesus, or religious order better known as the Jesuits. So that's that's a kind of thumbnail version of his his life. He's, he was a pretty headstrong guy. And the old joke in the Jesuits is it took a cannonball to kind of turn his life around, which is how he got injured. Yeah. And, and it's funny, his vanity, another instance of his vanity was his, you know, hit his leg or something. And he, he was worried about how his leg would look in stockings. So he wanted to do the surgery and it just messed it up even more. Yeah. They, you know, he, the tights of the time, I guess, showed off your, your legs, I guess. And he had the surgery done, as you were saying, you know, after the cannonball hit him. And it wasn't good enough. There was a little bone protruding. And so without anesthesia, he had the doctor, you know, I think saw the bone off, you know, which I can't imagine how 
painful that must have been. You know, and, and the, the reason he puts that in the book is to show you how vain he was and to kind of say that he was a sort of a slave to his own appearance. Later on, he decides, that, you know, he needs to move away from that. He lets his hair grow long and his fingernails grow. And he even says, well, that doesn't make sense either. So he, because it sort of scares people. So he opts for a kind of moderation. And that, that's a very Jesuit thing to do, kind of, you know, whatever, whatever works best in the situation. You also have an interesting story. How did you find your way into the priesthood? And why did you choose the Society of Jesus? <laughs> yeah, I went to uh, the Wharton School of Business at Penn, graduated in 82, and then worked for six years uh, in corporate America at GE, and really just found myself sort of miserable and not in the right place, square peg in a round hole. And I came upon a book by a guy named Thomas Merton, who's a Trappist monk, and that got me thinking about doing something different. And funny enough, to answer your question, the Jesuits, I, I knew nothing about the Jesuits. I mean, you know, most Catholics know them for their schools like Georgetown and Fordham and BC. The old joke is, you know, we uh, started schools so they could win basketball scholarships and tournaments, <laughs> Gonzaga, places like that. But I knew nothing about them. And someone suggested them as being kind of congenial to me. And I, you know, took one look and thought, this is it. This is for me. They're, they're very, it's a very kind of accessible and friendly spirituality. And the guys I met were just great and funny and smart and hardworking. And yeah, it was a, it was a good fit. So I entered 30 years ago this year. Wow. So it didn't take a cannonball for you. It did not. <laughs> Although, you know, the, the job at GE was sufficiently difficult, not in terms of doing it, but just, you know, my kind of distaste for it. And I started to get stress-related illnesses and headaches and migraines and so a different kind of cannonball. I mean, just, just a kind of miserable life situation that prompted me to be more open. I think God really can enter into your life a little bit more when you're vulnerable. That doesn't mean God kind of punishes us and makes us sick or something like that. But, you know, when I was kind of down and out and feeling, you know, like I didn't know where to go, my defenses were down. And I think God was able to break in a little bit more easily. So let's talk about uh, Ignatian spirituality and how uh, sort of his philosophy. There's there's four tenets, basic tenets. What are those four tenets? Well, they're four, uh, four of my tenets, I would say. First is uh, finding God in all things. And that means that God is not just confined to the walls of a church or in scripture, you know, or in sort of personal prayer. But, you know, God can be found in, you know, your relationships, in work, in music, in your family. And it's a very broad-minded spirituality. Second is this notion of being a contemplative in action, which means that, you know, most of us, and I would bet, bet most people who are listening to this podcast are pretty busy people, and none of us are monks, very few of us are monks, but can you have a kind of contemplative stance in the world where you're looking at things in a contemplative way and you're not going, you know, running from place to place without any sort of reflection? That's another tenet. Third, it's incarnational, which means that it, it, it trusts that, that God is kind of present and, you know, in terms of Jesus, that Jesus became, you know, God became human in Jesus. And there's a kind of comfort in that and an ability to really connect with Jesus and connect with God. And then fourth, I would say it's freedom. That's a, that's a really important thing for a lot of people these days. Freedom and detachment. So for a lot of people who don't know Ignatian spirituality, it's very similar to Buddhism, the sense of detachment and freedom. And you're not so attached to something that you can't respond to God's will. You know, funny enough, I think if I were to do it again, I'd just say three tenets <laughs> because the um, incarnation and finding God in all things are kind of close, but hey, you know, my book's not perfect. Right. And the freedom and detachment, we'll talk a little about that later. Reminded me sure. of stoicism too, in a lot of ways. A little bit. I think the difference between Ignatian spirituality or more broadly Christian spirituality and stoicism is that 
it has an object. And so the freedom is freedom for something. And the freedom for is, you know, responding to kind of God's voice in your life. Where Stoicism, I think it's less, I mean, from what I remember about my philosophy courses, you know, it, it, it's not connected to God per se, but there is, there, there are many, there are many overlaps between Ignatian spirituality and, you know, read like Marcus Aurelius and it's, it's very similar. So this book you wrote, The Jesuit's Guide to Almost Everything, I mean, you're coming at it from a Catholic perspective, from your background as a Jesuit. But what's interesting, I've been reading the reviews about it, that people of all faiths and backgrounds and even people who aren't religious or don't even believe in God, they've gotten something out of it. I mean, what do you think it is about the principles of Ignatian spirituality that makes it so attractive or useful to people from all walks of life? Well, for one thing, Ignatius himself dealt with people from all walks of life. And so he, he, it was not someone who was just dealing with, you know, people in a monastery or sisters. He dealt with people who were, you know, uh, during the 16th century working and politicians and, you know, even royalty. And so he wanted to make it accessible. But, but really it's, it's that finding God in all things that I think really appeals to people and even people who are seeking and, and agnostic or atheist. There's a sense that, Ignatian spirituality meets people where they are, which is what I try to do in the book. But, you know, even if you don't believe in God, I have, you know, plenty of friends who are agnostic and atheist. I think they like the idea of freedom. I think they like the idea of being able to, for example, review your day in a prayer called the examine uh, or the examination of conscience. So there's a lot you could, there's, there's a whole chapter on decision making, which is very helpful for a lot of people. So you know, I, I wrote it for everybody, basically. And obviously, as a Jesuit, I want people to come to God and, you know, move closer to Jesus. But I recognize that that is not where everybody is, you know, at the moment. So, yeah, let's talk about some of these practices. You mentioned the examination of conscience or the examine. What is the purpose of this exercise and what are the steps and, and how can it be modified for people depending on their spiritual background or lack of it? Sure. Well, the examine is basically a prayer that helps you review the day and see where God is active. I think if you're not religious, it, it could probably function as a review and a kind of self-examination, you know, which is certainly valuable. But it really, I think, to be fully appreciated needs to be understood in the context of our relationship to God. So what is it? Basically, you start off with placing yourself in God's presence. Okay. So just you know, you would do this maybe at the end of the day for 15 minutes. Uh, and by the way, if you go online, we have examined podcasts at America that help you lead, lead people through it. It's a little easier if you're being led through it. Anyway, so you put yourself in God's presence. Remember that it's not just you sort of plowing through the day, remembering things. Second, you call to mind anything you're grateful for, right? And you, you call to mind, St. Ignatius says you savor it almost like you're savoring a good meal or a fine wine. So that could be big things. You know, you got a promotion, um, you got engaged, bought a new car, something like that. Or it could be small things. You heard from a friend of yours that you hadn't heard from for a while. You, you know, went out with a friend for a beer. Your favorite sports team, you know, won the World Series, you know, the Super Bowl, as mine did recently. And you sort of savor these things and give thanks to God. You just thanks, thanks for, you know, a great thing happening today. And the reason you do that is because we are generally problem solvers and we move on to the problems very quickly. So Ignatius wants to ground you. The next step is you review the day, start to finish, and you try to see where God has been active. You know, where, where did you notice God's presence? Where was God active? Where did you turn away from God? And that leads you to sorrow for your sins or your limitations. There's a sense of just, you know, being open about your limitations and your failings and your sinfulness. And then last stage is you ask for 
the grace to see God in the next day. It's a very simple prayer. It takes about 15 minutes at the end of the day, which is when most people like to do it. But it really gets your spiritual house in order because I think it's a lot easier to see where God was than to see where God is, frankly. Yeah, that's interesting. And as I was reading that, I thought it was kind of saying Ignatius was sort of uh, ahead of his time because you see, you know, psychologists, positive psychology saying, basically kind of giving people like, you should do this, like show that you're, you know, think about what you're grateful for, review on how you can improve yourself and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, no, he's, I mean, he is a brilliant psychologist, frankly. He understands how the human mind works and not only from going through tough times in his own life, but really counseling other people. He's also great at helping people sort of sort through, you know, where different feelings are coming from and what's leading you to something healthy and what's leading you to something unhealthy. It really is, he's kind of a master psychologist. And I I found that Ignatian spirituality has really, I mean, that's kind of an understatement, has really not only changed my life, but helped me as a, just as a human being, sort of live a, a happier life and a more fulfilling life. And that's, those are some of the things I wanted to communicate in the book to everybody. Yeah. And speaking of, you know, Ignatius as the psychologist, he, he devotes a lot of time to desires and thinking about your desires. What's going on there? Because I mean, why he says you should pay attention to your desires. What does he mean by that? Because when I think, I think when most people hear desire, they think I desire food, I desire sex, I desire all these other things that aren't that great. So what is he talking about when he's talking about desires? Yeah. Although I should say there's nothing wrong with, you know, food and sex and clothing and things like that. I think what he's talking about are you know, the deep desires that lead us to know what God wants for us. And, you know, it's a very, it's a very basic thing. So how does God call us to things? Okay. So if you want to talk about, say something like marriage, right. Or, you know, falling in love, well, you know, God calls us through physical attraction, spiritual attraction, emotional attraction. And most people who are religious and are, you know, married or in love would say, you know, I think God called us together. Well, that's how it works. You know, God calls us to our different vocations through what we're interested in, right? I mean, you desire to for, for, you know, you desire to start this podcast. There's a reason that you're excited about it, that you're interested in it. And this is one way that God calls us to do the things we're meant to do. And then on a more fundamental level, God calls us through our desires to be the kinds of people we're meant to be. So if you, I, and I bet most of the people listening have a desire or an, an image in their minds of the person that they want to become. Okay. Like more loving, more charitable, more relaxed, freer, less bothered by things. And I would say that that image and that desire is one way that God calls us to be that kind of person, right? I mean, how else would God work? So, so there's a sense that if you, if you pay attention to your desires and your deepest desires, and you can discern which are kind of surface desires, you know, like I want a new PC, and which are the deep desires, it really can help you move towards the person that God wants you to be. And it's, 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 it's very freeing. And I think, you know, people have been told for so long not to pay attention to their desires that when they hear this, it, it kind of clicks, makes sense. Well, what do you do about those, you know, you talk about those higher level desires of being charitable, for example. So you, you might desire that, but then like you don't desire to do the thing, you know, like the, the, the things that you have to do to be charitable. What, yeah. what do you, how do you learn to want to, to want that thing that you know is good for you? What a great question. You know, that's exactly what St. Paul said. He said, I, I, I don't do the good that I want to do. I do the bad that I don't want to do. But, and yeah, I think first of all, by recognizing that it is a call, that it's not simply, oh, you know, I have this interesting feeling to help that homeless guy. I mean, that it is in fact coming from God and that God's going to help you. So if you decide that you want to live a more charitable or peaceful or loving life, you have this sort of feeling that that's what, what, what's being asked of you. To remember that, first of all, it's a call. 
So to sort of reverence it in that way, it's not just some, you know, you know, just uh, sort of fleeting feeling you have. Second, that God's going to help you, right? I mean, why wouldn't God want to help you sort of live more charitably? And frankly, third, that it might take some time before it feels natural. You know, fake it till you make it, right? I mean, it, it may feel strange to be, to start to be forgiving and let go of grudges and be more, more charitable, but that's okay. Uh, because to, to trust that, that God is on your side and that God knows what's best for you. I often use the example of, uh, this usually helps people, if you have like some injury and you go to a physical therapist, right? And the PT guy says, all right, what I want you to do is walk around on your foot in this particular way. Now, at the beginning, it might feel painful, but you know, you trust the guy because he, you know, he's a PT guy and you will continue to do it because you trust it. You know, it's good for you. And you know that this guy has the best in mind for you. So that that's the idea that you, you, you follow these desires because you know where they're coming from and you know that they're going to lead to your good and everybody else's good for that matter too. Well, another thing you talked about sort of related to desires is this idea of disordered attachments. What are those and how do they mess up people's lives? What Ignatius calls, it's kind of a strange phrase, what Ignatius calls a disordered attachment or you can also say an unfreedom is anything that keeps you from becoming the person you want to be or the person that God wants you to be and responding to you know God's will in your life. So for example... If you're so attached to something that you can't be a loving person, then it's disordered. The best example is, let's say you're in the hospital, right? And, you know, you're a good friend of mine and I want to visit you. But I say to myself, oh my gosh, if I go to the hospital, I'm going to get sick because there's all these sick people in the hospital. Well, Ignatius would say, you are so attached to your own health or your own desire for perfect health that it's disordered. It's actually preventing you from being a good friend, right? From being a good human being. So he would say, you need to really look at that. And you need to kind of free yourself of those disordered attachments. And we all have them. We all have those unfreedoms in our life. If you're so attached to status and power and money that you can't be a good person, then that is a disordered attachment. And you need to let go of it. It's 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 hard to do, but it's it's essential, right? There's that Buddhist sort of connection there a bit. Yeah, sure. Uh, this this sense of being free and not being tied down. Did Ignatius have any practices to help you? I don't know, get over these disordered attachments or desire the th- or do the things you know you should do. Did he have any like mental or spiritual exercises he he suggested? He did, and one of them is called agire contra. Agire means to act, and contra is obviously against. And he means to start doing it even though it feels like it's unnatural, to act against your natural, for example, selfish desire. So, for example, when I was a Jesuit novice, I was very concerned with my health. And I said to my novice director, well, the last thing I want to do for my ministry is work in the hospital. He said, why not? And I said, well, you know, I don't want to get sick and kind of grossed out around people who are sick and, you know, all the sights and smells and sounds. And he said, well, good. Well, you'll be working in a hospital. <laughs> and that wasn't to punish me. That wasn't to make me feel bad about myself or to you know, put me in my place. It was agire contra. It was to act against your natural inclination in order to free yourself up. And so when I went in and spent, gee, a couple months there, you know, working in a hospital for seriously ill patients, this was in Cambridge, Mass., it, it, it did. It, it freed me of that. And also, what kind of a Jesuit or priest would you be if you could never go into a hospital? Right. So that's actually a contra. That's working against or acting against your 
natural desire or your natural inclination if it's a, if it's an unhealthy inclination or desire. So the the unhealthy inclination was to only you know care for my own health. And I think this was your. I don't know if this was Ignatius, but one that really hit home to me was act like your best self would. Yeah, that that's actually my <laughs> that's my addition to Ignatius. Right. I like to say to people, imagine, and this is also a good decision making tool. Imagine the person that you really want to become. So I, I think we all, as I mentioned earlier, we all have an idea of the person we'd like to be in like five years, you know, ten years. This is especially true for young young people. If you're like right out of college, you know, yeah, okay, this is the kind of person I want to be. Or you see someone, you say, boy, I'd like to be like that guy. You know, he's so kind and he's so nice and he's so confident, whatever. And the trick, I think, is to say to yourself, all right, in this particular situation, with in this decision making time, what would my best self do? And it's very clarifying. Can, can I give you an example? Yeah, please. A good friend of mine's father died a few years ago, very good friend of mine, a Jesuit. And the funeral was in upstate New York in Buffalo, as I recall. And I was very busy and there was this uh, snowstorm coming and it was really kind of a tough week. And I didn't quite know what to do. It was very hard for me to figure out the right thing to do. You know, on one hand I'd work and the other hand I had all sorts of, you know, desires to be with my friend. So in any event, I went back and forth, you know, what's the right thing to do? And finally, I used that tool. I said to myself, what would my best self do? And I tell you, within a second, I realized, oh, he'd go. I mean, you know, my best self, the, the person I want to be, would go to his friend's father's funeral. No question. Like, just like that, it came. And so I did, and I was very happy I did. So what would your best self do? And do it. Yeah, what I like about that is that it gets, it makes, so there's that whole fake it till you make it and people feel phony. But that think, I'm thinking about what your best self would do sort of reduces that cognitive dissonance because you're like, oh, this is me. Like, this is what I want. This is what I would do. That's exactly right. And it's okay to feel like it's unnatural. I mean, of course, it's going to feel unnatural if you've been acting a particular way and you're changing your life. That, you know, it's like going to the gym for the first time. If you've never been, it's going to feel odd. You're going to feel funny in those clothes and maybe self-conscious, but eventually it'll, it'll just kick in and you'll feel comfortable there. That I think the fact that it feels unnatural is not a reason not to do it. And it's, it's okay to, to admit that and to say, you know, I'm trying something new, but I know that this is going to help. So one of the things Jesuits do, like a lot of other orders, is they take a vow of poverty. Why Why is that? What's the purpose of that? Well, the real purpose of the vows, which is poverty, chastity, and obedience, is to follow Jesus. So Jesus lived poor. I mean, we know that. Chaste, he didn't get married, and obedient, you know, to, to, to the Father's will. So that's the main reason. But it also is very freeing. You know, I don't own anything. I don't Everything I get from my books and salary, I work at a Catholic magazine, goes to my Jesuit community. It's very freeing. I don't have to worry about, you know, my next job, even if you would call it that. You know, we have we have ministries in the Jesuits. And it's it's just great. I, I love it. You know, the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits take care of me. I mean, I as we say, three hots and a cot and you know, anything that I would need in terms of clothes and things like that. But that is for me the easiest vow. I mean, I when I worked at GE, I was doing pretty well. I was making a good salary and, you know, I had a lot of suits and a lot of stuff and a car. And I, I love not having a lot of things. I, I really do. It's, I mean, a friend of mine came into my room the other day and said, you know, I have books and clothes and stuff, obviously. He said, well, where, where's all the rest of your stuff? I said, that's it. <laughs> it's great. It's very, you feel very light. So that's the, the, and it's also a way to identify with the poor. We don't live, you know, like homeless people, but we live very simply and we try to, 
identify with people who are poor, which is what Jesus did. He he tried to live simply, and 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 his, his first, you know, the, his, his primary audience was the poor. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Hey, podcast fans, Spotify is making it easy for you to stream this podcast and many others like it on your mobile device, desktop app, and smart speaker. Open the app on your mobile device or desktop, click on the browse channel, then click on the podcast section. While you're there, subscribe to the Art of Manliness podcast. You'll be able to stay thoroughly entertained during your commute to work, drive home, and downtime now thanks to Spotify. Again, check it out, Spotify podcast. Also by Proper Cloth. Buying a dress shirt can be a huge hassle. First, you got to know your neck size. If you don't know your neck size, you got to track down a sales associate so you can measure your neck. You pick Pick out the shirt that fits your neck size, but then the shirt's too billowy or the sleeves don't fit right. So you go up a size in your collar, but now the collar's too big and everything else is fine. Best way to get a perfectly fitting shirt is to go custom made to measure. You're probably thinking, Brett, that's going to cost an arm and a leg. Not so with Proper Cloth. At propercloth.com, you can easily create a custom shirt size in seconds by answering 10 simple questions, no tape measure required. And from there... You can choose from 20 collar styles, 10 cuff styles, and 500 fabric styles from classic to business to completely customize your shirt and get the style you want. Each one of their shirts goes through an extensive quality control testing, so you're getting the absolute best quality and craftsmanship. Best of all, proper cloth guarantees a perfect fit, meaning that if somehow your shirt doesn't fit perfectly, they'll remake it for free. I did this with a white button-down Oxford. Answered the 10 questions, a little dubious that was going to fit me just by answering some questions, but I did. Got the shirt, fit me like a glove. This is the future of shirts, people. These shirts are made completely custom for you, and here's the kicker, starting at just $80. So stop wearing shirts that don't fit. Start looking your best with a custom fitted shirt. Go to propercloth.com slash manliness today and enter gift code manliness to save $20 on your first shirt. Again, propercloth.com slash manliness, gift code manliness to save $20 on your first shirt. And now back to the show. And so how can ordinary people, I don't know, live this idea of, you know, poverty or simplicity without having to become a you know, a monk or whatever. Sure. Yeah. Most people aren't going to become monks by trying to live simply and looking at what you have with a critical eye and saying, do I really need this? You know, at GE of all places to learn spiritual advice, um, we used to talk about nice to have and need to have. I mean, you know, how many sweaters do you need, right? How many sneakers do you need? Do you really need all that stuff? And can you get rid of them? And, and people always feel better when they do spring cleaning, when they get rid of a lot of crap. And then to also say that it, it's better to give it to the poor. One of the great lines from a Catholic saint, St. Francis de Sales, I think, said, that extra coat in your closet doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the poor. So there's also a sense of giving away not only for your own sense of freedom, but for the poor. And going back to this idea, of, you know, one of the big overarching themes in Ignatian spirituality is, is moderation. So, I mean, it seems like he was not keen on taking poverty to, to the extreme. No, he wasn't. And he learned that early on in his life when we mentioned, you know, his sort of attention to his, his appearance. And at one point, he let his hair grow long and he let his fingernails grow long. He said, I'm not going to take care of my health. I'm not going to eat well. I'm going to eat like a hermit. And it really screwed up with his health or screwed up his health. And he realized that that's not going to help him work. I mean, he needed to kind of have a certain amount of health. So he tried to have things in moderation. And so the Jesuits, we don't live like homeless people. We don't live like hermits. We have houses. We have, you know, beds and clothes and food and things like that in order to help us do our work. It's a very practical spirituality. Now, that might be different than Francis of Assisi, right, who did live extremely simply and didn't want his brothers to have, you know, even a, even a house. But for Ignatius, his way of discerning was that if we just you know, try to live simply and do things in moderation. It's a lot better for helping us do our work. 
So Ignatius also had a lot to say about not just our relationship to God, but also about our relationship to other people. And so talk, talk to us because I think that was some of the most interesting and probably useful things I got out of the book was our, our friendships and relationships. Yeah, thanks. Well, we Jesuits take a vow of chastity, which means we don't get married, we don't have sex, we don't have what we call exclusive relationships. And that means that it's a different way of loving. It's a way of loving people you know, deeply, but also freely. So a lot of it relies on friendships, very deep friendships. And I talk in the book about the value of having close friends and what it means to be a good friend and what it means to sort of celebrate your friendship. So, you know, the way of chastity and the way of St. Ignatius is not about, you know, just you know, like being in your room all night and just, you know, kind of staring at the TV because you don't, don't have anyone in your life. It's about celebrating your friends and really loving them deeply and, and seeing in that love an expression of God's love. So it's, it's, it, that too can be very freeing. I, I often tell people, I, sh- I certainly miss, you know, one on one intimacy and uh, sex and exclusivity in that way. But I have a ton of friends and I, this is not better or worse. I just simply have more time for them than people who are married. I just do. I mean, that's, you know, that, that, that would make sense, I think, to most people. And so to have these great friends who you can love freely and deeply is really a blessing. And I think, part of the book is to remind people of the value of friendships, even people who are married, right? I mean, this is not just for single people or celibate people or chaste people. It's for people who are married too, because we tend to overlook that. We tend to overlook the value of friendship and that kind of love in our, in our society. Well, one overarching principle for friendship in all relationships that Ignatius taught was something called the presupposition. What is that principle and how can it improve relationships? Yeah, that can improve relations. I think it can improve our country too, especially right now. The presupposition is something that he began what's called his spiritual exercises with, which is his great manual on prayer. And he said, basically, it's giving people the benefit of the doubt. And so if someone says something that you don't understand or don't agree with, you ask them what they mean by it. And if you still don't understand, you give them the benefit of the doubt. You presume that the person is trying to act on his or her best interests, and you don't critique them without listening to them. And, you know, boy, just go on social media or Twitter or Facebook or even Instagram, and you can see people not giving one another the benefit of the doubt. I mean, always taking someone's words and twisting them or assuming the worst. And it's interesting that, for me at least, that that is the beginning of his classic text on the spiritual life, which is, you know, it's not some footnote. That is sort of front and center. Give people the benefit of the doubt. As we say in the Jesuits, give them the plus sign. And it's really, you know, it frees you up from a lot of grudges and resentment and, you know, kind of ridiculous uh, anger that that has nothing to do with the reality of the situation. It's just your interpretation of it. And it frees the other person, you know, it just lets them be who they are. So I I find that really helpful. So yeah, the presupposition is 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 key for Ignatian spirituality. I wish I wish more people in our political system used it too. Yeah, no, I I've that would hit home hard for me because I often because it's so easy to do when someone like a friend say snubs you or f- forgets you and you think, oh, you just think what a jerk. He's so thoughtless. When you think, well, no, he's probably like really busy. He's got something going on in his life. So assume that instead of assuming the worst. Exactly, and 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 they usually do. That's that's the irony. When you dig a little deeper, you find that you know, people who are in those situations do, you know, are struggling. You know, that old thing about be kind to people, everybody's fighting their own battle. I'm sure you've heard that expression. There's a little of that, you know, if someone snaps at you or, you know, shoves in front of you on the subway, I live in New York, you know, can you say, boy, this person 
Yeah, maybe they have a really, maybe they're rushing to visit, you know, their husband in the hospital, right? I mean, instead of like punching them in the face or wanting them to die, you, you say a prayer for that person. And it's, it's much, it's, it's a much better way to live. And it really frees you of a lot of really unnecessary anger. Now, that's not to say that people, you know, aren't, uh, you know, intentionally mean to us from time to time, but most of the time it's not intentional and it's, it's good to give them the plus sign, as we say. So, you know, going back to that idea of being disappointed in our friends for not being better friends for X, Y, or Z reason, what, what do you think or what does Ignatius think is really behind these disappointments? Is it, I mean, is it because we're, we're thinking of people as things that they're there to satisfy us and our needs and our desires? I think that's part of it, that we look at people as functional and they should be satisfying our desires. There's a sense of, I'd say not all the time, but there's there can be a sense of selfishness that I need to be at the center of everybody's life. And there's also a sense of proportion that, you know, not everybody can always be attentive to you and can always be at your beck and call. And it's loving your friends as they are. So I'll tell you a, a funny story. One of my best friends is terrible at keeping in touch, just absolutely awful. I mean, you know, I'll text him and I'll be like, yes, no. <laughs> <laughs> and he and I asked him once, he said, I just I don't like texting. I don't like talking on the phone a whole lot. I love, you know, being together and you know, we take vacations together and we, you know, we have tons of fun we're together. So what's the point of this long story? The point is I need to let my friend be who he is. Right? I mean, I I need to love him as he is, not as I would want him to be. You know, the person who calls me every week religiously or texts me or and we've talked about it. I said, you know what? He said, That's just the way I am. I just I don't like going on the phone. I don't like, I've never have ever since I was little. That's who he is. So can I love him like that and not demand that he be the kind of friend that I want or think I need? And boy, I tell you, once you free yourself of, of that, if you free yourself of the desire to sort of make people in your own image, it's, it's, it, your life is a lot more pleasant. It, what does Satan say about keeping friendships and nurturing them when we're so busy and mo- mobile? I mean, you, you're, you're not married, so you have more time for friends, but you're also very busy because you're doing lots of stuff. So what are your insights about that? Well, it takes work. I think that's one of the most important things. They, they don't just happen, you know, I mean, friendships develop organically, but to keep them alive, it's like a garden. I mean, you have to water them and nourish them and nurture them. So that, that means time with people and attention and sacrificing your time and, and really wanting the best for them. So I think it's really important to say that, you know, even with distance, it requires, it requires some energy and some effort, but it's worth it. Ignatius has an expression called union of hearts and minds. And that, you know, the Jesuits, especially early on when there were few of them and they were all over the globe, you know, people like St. Francis Xavier, who was in India and Africa and China, you know, they, they kept uh, in touch with letters. That was the way that they did it back then. And now you can talk about, you know, obviously email and text and things like that, but it requires one-on-one time. It requires FaceTime, and that's that's an investment in friendship. You know, we invest in our jobs and in our careers. We would say, "Oh, of course, you know, I'll take this time out to get an MBA or you know work overtime because I really my career is really important to me," which is true and great. Or I will you know sacrifice myself for my family. Well, it's also you need to, in a sense, do this kind of same kinds of things for relationships in your life and friendships in your life. Or You'll find, since we're talking about the art of manliness, you know, like a lot of guys, you know, who are out of school for a couple of years and married, they, their friendships atrophy. I'm sure you know that. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's, and a lot of my guy friends, you know, say, you know, how do you, how are you able to keep up? You know, okay. One reason is I'm not married, 
But another reason is, you know, I really, I'm very attentive to that. You know, I really, I really sort of spend time developing, you know, basically, you know, calling them from time to time and just keeping up. And that is a great, I'm sure, you know, that is a great sort of sadness among a lot of married men. No, yeah. That, that they don't, yeah. And so that's a, that's a real insight from Ignatius union of hearts and minds and really spending time on it. There's a practice you mentioned that Jesuits use to build friendship called faith sharing. What What is that? Yeah, it's pretty great. We um, get together, depends on the, the group of guys, with my friends once a month, and you talk about where God has been active in your daily life and in your prayer. Now, not everybody's going to be able to do it in that way, you know, because they might not be religious or have religious friends, but, you know, can you get together with your your guy friends or, you know, if you're you know, female friends, it doesn't have to be just guys. And talk about things that I like to say are meaningful, significant, or important. That's a nice way to start off. What's meaningful, significant, or important that's happened over the last month or a couple of weeks? And it's really wonderful because not only from a religious point of view, do you see how God is at work in each person's life, but it really helps you to, to in a sense, be compassionate to your friend. So let's, let's take an example. Let's say you have a group of three or four guy friends who get together, and one guy has been out of touch or has been a little distant or aloof and you don't really share with him on any sort of deep level or you haven't for a while. And when he sits down and says, you know, I have to tell you my, you know, my father's going through a cancer treatment or, you know, I'm really struggling at my job. You have this sense of understanding him better such that you can be a better friend to him, right? That doesn't have to happen in a group, but we find it's, it's really helpful when it does happen in a group because there's something about a group dynamic that, that when the person shares what's going on and people can kind of respond in a gentle way, it, it also helps the person feel really supported too. So yeah, faith sharing is is really important for personal support, but from a religious point of view, it also helps to see where God has been at work. When it, when it's hard to see God at work in your life, it's easier to see where God is at work in the other guy's life. I'm sure that's hard for a lot of men to open up like that though too. Yeah, it is. Although, you know, it's funny. It is and it isn't. I was just on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land just a, two weeks ago and we had a hundred people and you know they're religious of course but a lot of the people who were on the trip probably most of them were very successful fairly wealthy you know adult men okay so it was men and women kind of a mix and you know you had like captains of industry to use that old-fashioned term and when they got in a group and once one person opened up about you know the death of death of a child and illness divorce it gave permission for the other guys to do it and it gave permission for people to be themselves and for people to talk about their desires and for people to talk about where God was in their lives. And so I'd say yes and no. I, th- I think that, you know, if it's done in a way that, I, that is, how would I say it, that's uh, inviting, I think people respond to it. Because I think there's a deep need and a deep desire for people to be known and for people to be open and transparent. I really do. Would you agree? I yeah, mean, don't I you think, think that so. like deep no, down? People want to be known. People want to be recognized. Yeah. And they, and they, and I think, you know, you know, I mean, I think it'd be hard to do at a bar, right? but you know, maybe in a different setting where people feel more comfortable. That's not, by the way, that's not to say that those, those kinds of sharing don't happen at bars and places like that. But I think to, to, to provide a space where people feel safe, can be a real blessing for people. Right. And like you said, it takes it just takes one person and kind of going biblical. It's like the leaven, right? Just like one little yeah. bit can just have a big effect. Yeah. And, you know, their truth begets truth. And I think that, and as they say, you know, heart speaks to heart too. So there, there's a, there's a kind of recognition that 
wow, we're all human. And, and I think that's one of the lessons I learned when I was out of college that I think, you know, most of my college years were spent trying to be cool and looking like I was on top of everything. But, you know, once you're out of college, for some people earlier, you realize that everybody's struggling. Everybody's kind of facing their own battles and it's okay. And to be able to support one another uh, means at the very first step is to be honest with one another. So uh, you mentioned, we talked about the vow of poverty. You, you t- hit on the vow of chastity. Another vow that you take is the vow of obedience. But that's a, that's a virtue or an ideal that, that's pretty unpopular with the general public. Uh, because when you like you, yeah, when, no you when you be obedient, it means like you're a dog, or it makes you think yeah. you're not, you know, Nazis or whatever. Yeah. So how does obedience work in the order, and how do how much say do Jesuits get as to where and what they are assigned to? Yeah, that's a good question. I never thought of the Nazi analogy too, but that is a good <laughs> sort of negative uh, view of obedience. It's obedience to God, basically, and you know, so it's trying to understand where God's at work and. So one one way of looking at obedience I talk about in the book is, you know, my dad died in 2001 of cancer. And, you know, when the diagnosis was given to him and to us and the family, you know, I had a choice, right? I could be a complete jerk and say, well, I'm not going to really engage this. I'm not going to kind of enter into this. Or I could be, this is where the word comes in. I could be obedient to what God wants me to do, which is to really be a good son and to kind of step onto that path. And as a friend of mine likes to say, surrender to the future God has in store for you. So it's that kind of obedience. For the Jesuit, um, obedience is obedience to your religious superiors who, you know, ask you to do certain jobs. And the idea is that they would have, you know, they're at a the most the highest level would be the the head of all the Jesuits in Rome, who has a better idea of, you know, what the needs of the church are than you do, you know, me, me and my little office in New York. So if he would just say, Jim, hey, we we need you to do this job. The idea is that he has a better idea of where the greater needs are and also that God's leading him. So it's that kind of obedience too. But really it's obedience to God. It's obedience to what God wants. And yeah, it's not a, it's not a popular idea right now, but I think it's, it's necessary because if you're in a sense disobedient to what God wants, then it's all about you, right? It's just like, I mean, let's say to use the example of my dad, right? Who died. You know, let's say I were to say, yeah, I'm too busy to visit him. I mean, that, that, you know, that, that, that's a kind of disobedience, right? That's kind of, that's a kind of freedom that I don't think, you know, would be very helpful. I mean, you know, I could see a lot of people do that, you know, would say like, ah, you know, well, I'll, I'll leave it. I'm no, I'm no doctor, so I can't really help. Or, yeah, I don't want to get too sentimental because, you know, I don't know if I could go there. Or, or there's this kind of, there's a kind of withdrawal from those difficult situations that I think we all feel we don't want to do it. But that's the obedience. That's the hard obedience. And that's the kind of stuff I talk about in the book. Well, what if, let's say, your desires and the desires of your superiors conflict, right? Let's say your superior says, this is what we need you to do. But you're like, no, I really feel like this is what I <laughs> what I should be doing. What, what happens there? That happens fairly frequently and usually with assignments. So let's say, so here I am. I work at America Magazine, a Catholic magazine. Let's say my superior says, well, you know, Jim, you've been there 20 years now. You know, it was a good run. Now we need you to be pastor of this church. Now I would, he would say, you know, go pray about it, see what comes up, you know, sort of see what your desires are and where God might be leading you and how you feel about that. You know, what, what does that, what does that do to you inside? And, and usually the Jesuit would come back and say, yeah, okay. You know, that's, yeah, I think, you know, I think that makes sense. And I trust that you're praying about this and that, you know, you've got my best interest at heart and that, You've got the best interests of, of, you know, the world and of God's people and the church at heart. So yeah, I'll do it. Now, a lot of times, or maybe sometimes 
the guy would say, you know what? I'm not feeling that. <laughs> uh, you know, I really, the last thing I want to do is be a pastor. I'm really not good at organizing. and I'm like terrible at whatever. The superior might say, okay, you know, thanks for, that's, that's good. You know, maybe you're right. And I, I hear that. So, you know, stay at America. Or he might say, yeah, you know what? We really need you. <laughs> and that's where you would say, okay, I guess I'm going. And uh, the idea is, again, that he has a better understanding in mind. Now, for a lot of people, that seems like, oh, my gosh, I could never do that. But that's what we do at work. You know, I worked at GE for for six years. And let me tell you, I had a hell of a lot less say at GE about what I was going to do day to day than in the Jesuits. So I, I, I often talk about obedience and remind people who are in the corporate world, like, you know, what do you do? You know, you, you're obedient to your boss. And, you know, it's often not a kind of communal discernment, as we say. But the, the ultimate obedience is really to God. Right. So, I mean, for a, a regular person, I mean, what does that look like? It's just it's, it's following those, I don't know, those compunctures of conscience to do the right thing. Is that what it is? I think that's part of it. I think the idea of surrendering to the future that God has in store is really important. I think, you know, obedience, you know, it's easy to be obedient when something's easy, right? So let's say, you know, you get a promotion or you're, you're going to get married or your wife's going to have a baby or whatever. I mean, you know, the obedience is, wow, you know, I'm going to enjoy the new job and say yes to it and really jump into it, or I'm going to get married and I'm going to really love it. So there is an obedience there. There's a kind of assent to to what's going on. That's that's important. But the hard part is when it's suffering. And that that's where the real obedience comes in. And that's really, I think, the answer to your question, which is to say yes to those things, even those things that you think are going to be difficult because you feel that this is the right thing to do. So the example of going to my friend's father's funeral, which was a small thing, but the big thing of, you know, really caring for my father and entering into that. Because I'm sure, you know, there's a way I mean, wouldn't you agree there's a way of kind of standing at arm's length from some of those things? No, yeah, for sure. Yeah, like you can say, I'm not just, I'm just not going to engage it. I'm it's just not going to, and I know guys like that. It's just, I'm just, it's not, I'm just not going to enter into that. And so the, the obedience is to say yes, to say yes to those things. And, and then that requires too, to like be detached from outcomes or whatever. That is exactly right. Or be detached from the need to, for example, I think one of the hard things about, you know, when my dad died was I knew that, I mean, you know, I'm not an idiot. I knew that it was going to be tremendously sad and difficult and frightening and disappointing and confusing, you know, just to watch him go through the treatment and to help my mother and to eventually prepare for the funeral, right? Now, there's a way, particularly with guys, that we can say no to that, right? We can say no to that to that reality and just distance ourselves and kind of close ourselves down. And I, I know guys like this. They're just, they're not letting it in. They're not saying yes to it. And it's on their terms, right? I will, all right, I'll, 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 I'll go to the funeral, but I won't, you know, I'm not going to go to see him in the hospital or I'm going to go to the hospital. I'm just going to sort of keep myself at arm's length. So you're right. So the, the, the obedience is saying yes to those things and, and doing the right thing. And even, you know, to, to your point, to say, even if it's something that I need to let go of, like my attachment might be to my own sort of emotional equanimity, right? Like I don't like to cry or I don't like to feel out of control or I don't want to be upset. And so that's a disordered attachment there, right? So I'm not going to let myself feel. 
See what I'm saying? Yeah. I got you. Yeah. So that's, that's the attachment. The, you know, I don't want to be emotional and you have to let go of that in order to really enter into the situation where you will find God. Well, Reverend Martin, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book? Well, the Jesuit guy told us everything is, is, as they say, available where anywhere books are sold. I also have a Facebook page, Other Father James Martin SJ, and I'm under Twitter and Instagram under James Martin SJ. So yeah, I'm Anywhere online, you can find information about the Jesuit Guide. Fantastic. Well, Father James Martin, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. My guest there is Father James Martin. He's the author of the book, The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash Jesuit, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the show, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the podcast with a friend who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.